Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. You came back. That's pretty, that's big of you. So, uh, book of Hebrews, which we're studying the end of it anyway, says we're strangers and aliens here on earth and that we're on this faith journey to this faraway eternal city where God is the center and he sort of creates the environment, the culture, uh, sets the tone of the entire city and, and of everything we do. And so as citizens of that city with all the benefits Life and meaning and forgiveness, Uh, of course, with that come responsibilities. This series is about how to live as citizens in that city uh, while we're here on earth. So one of the characteristics of that city that we've looked at, because we're in the middle of, or sort of four verses into chapter 13, is that... uh, God's new people in his society, that's us, uh, we honor marriage. And um, we do that by keeping sex within marriage. So uh, Hebrews uh, 13.4, marriage must be honored among all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. For God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. We went through this verse. We've spent two weeks going through that verse. And we've basically made a couple of obvious statements. Marital sex is a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. You can defile it on either side of it. Um, So what we're talking about applies to married people and unmarried people. So... Fornicators, fornication is any kind of sexual sin. It even encompasses adultery. Um, But um, it describes people that aren't married. So adultery specifically applies to people who are. So the marriage bed sort of becomes the central piece and the center of the ethic for sexual purity. So this, this applies to married people and unmarried people. And all are required to live pure. Doesn't matter which side of it you're on. Purity is what we're called to. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God says, It is the will of God that you uh, be sanctified or holy. uh, Which he defines as avoiding sexual immorality. So on both sides here, we have to be pure. And so, uh, by the way, I mean, each one of these, purity on either side of these, requires certain, um, you know, different challenges. And so we need to look at both of those, and I thought I was going to be able to look at both of them today, so (laughs) I'm sorry, next week we're going to have to uh, do another one on on this side, if you're on this side, you know, the married folks. Uh, So today I'm going to try to get through the unmarried part of this. Um, It's not a given that I will do that. I just have too much. I left more in my office to share with you 
than I actually brought here. Um, what I sort of was trying to figure out is how do we, how do we come up with a vision for this uh, that's strong enough for people who aren't married to save themselves for it and for people who have it to protect it. Um, something beyond what the end of Hebrews 13.4 says, which is judgment. And of course, you got that hanging over your head. There's more. Um, Philip Yancey, in his book Rumors, says, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. That's a pretty powerful statement. Another powerful statement is made by Dallas Willard, I read years and years ago, and it's never left my head. One of the most telling things, he says, about contemporary human beings is that they cannot find a good reason for not committing adultery. I think you can add to that. They can't find a reason for being sexually pure before marriage. So, um, so we're going to look at this today and see how we can help a little bit. This is a little bit more of a practical side. We're sort of leaving Hebrews 13.4 to some degree except for the sort of the structure of this text. So Shakespeare said this, let wonder seem familiar and to the chapel let us presently. And uh, this is in much to do about nothing, much ado about nothing. And what it means is, if you want to make friends with this wonderful thing of sexual intimacy, uh, then you need to, you need to go make vows. And this is a lot of, there's a lot packed into this. There's the wonder of, of this sexual intimacy, the wonder of it. But after you're married for a while, it becomes very familiar. And this thing that was wonderful and you had high expectations for becomes something that's just very everyday. And if you want it to be a part of your everyday life, you need to make vows. You need to get to the chapel because you got to have commitment surrounding this wonder. I just love it. I love that. Um, And so how do you get a vision for marriage and the sexuality. Well, I think you got to go right here, back to Genesis. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, this is uh, very powerful. So if you don't mind, I'll start there, just say a couple of things. I want you to notice the connection between the outward and the inward. You've got this physical the external part of me, who I am physically, and then this other part of me of not feeling shame. That mean, that's everything underneath what you can see here. It represents me as a person. And when we come together in marriage at the end of Genesis 2, which is all about marriage, leads to this statement. You see this connection of the deepest part of me to the very outward part of my skin, that I'm a person through and through, that this is just the outer layer of far more in me and they go together and I can't ever separate those. And so when you cleave to one another and you become one flesh, it's not that you just put bodies together. Flesh doesn't mean just bodies coming together. 
It means everything I am. I can't bring my body to you and not bring everything I am to you. So that it's not just physical. So sex then becomes sort of a sign of this intimacy that we get in marriage when we cleave to one another. And then it also becomes a means by which you unify them. So the physical just pictures me bringing all of me to you. It's kind of what that means. So then uh, you're vulnerable in every way. That's what this is saying. I'm vulnerable, open in every way, not just physically. And so sex then in marriage is designed to maintain and rehearse that commitment of all of me to you all the time. It's just another way to deepen it, uh, to celebrate it, and to maintain it, and to remind me that I have given all of myself to a person. So in marriage, you can see its impact. Um, Giving all of myself, it's a uniting act. Now, Tim Keller, in his book, um, on marriage writes this, I think it's um, very important to say. When, he, when you talk about sex outside of marriage then, he writes this, it's to somewhat have to shut down a whole part of you so that you become numb to its purpose because its purpose was to carry all of you to another person. But if you don't bring all of you and there's no commitment, there's no emotional, there's no responsibility, Uh, no internal, personal, all of me coming to you, then you can become numb to its purpose. And it loses its covenant-making power for you. You've completely separated it from everything it's intended to do. You've learned to give some of you to someone, but not all of it. You become numb. And he writes this, Ironically, great statement this is. Ironically, sex outside of marriage eventually works backward, making you less able to commit and trust because you're so used to doing it without bringing all of you. Uh, They go together. And so, um, you know, I have this... uh, verse here because I want you to see something the last verse of Genesis 2 was the verse we just read the wife and his uh, where they're naked and unashamed but then you see now the serpent though he's crafty and there's a word play here they, they sound exactly alike in Hebrew it would be as if uh, the purpose was for you to hear nude and shrewd it's a way to show you that he's crafty and his specialty is to figure out how to attack that that whole issue of you as a whole person, he knows exactly how to do that. Um, it represents, so the nakedness here, and all through Genesis, by the way, represents your character and your integrity through and through. And he's going to attack that integrity. Um, and so the last verse is after they sin and after Satan is successful in his attempt to shatter that personhood. You remember their eyes are opened and they, they realized they were naked. And so what did they do? They hid. It was far more than just covering their bodies. 
They didn't put on clothes because it was cold in paradise. They put on clothes because there was a deeper part of them that got exposed. It wasn't just their bodies. Because you can't do that. You can't you can't just separate the two. Which is the whole point of this. So my body then is just my it's just the outer casing of all that I am. I never give you my body without giving you all of me. And so naturally in uh, this nakedness you can't disconnect that nakedness from sin and evil. They go together. And so now they go from innocent nakedness to shameful nakedness. And all of us know this. There's a natural instinct in all of us to hide. We want our nakedness to be secret. Um, it's the reason we've gotten so great at clothing. We're great at clothing. And it really helps protect us from reality and from the world and from our sin. And sin thrives in secrecy. And we cover it up because we just naturally, instinctively need that privacy. There's just some parts of us that are not easy to look at. And when you see me naked, you almost see through me. And you see that it's not just my body that's disfigured and ugly in places. It's my soul. It's a reminder, closer a reminder of that. Mike Mason, in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, um, gave me a vision of this because he spoke to it years ago and it's been in my head for 20 years. And maybe this is a, a way to help give a vision for, for the marriage bed. So follow me along in some of his thinking, if you will, regarding nakedness in this. He says, we dress because we sin. And even the finest clothing is like the striped suit of a jailbird, a sign and a reminder that a man is an unholy fugitive in hiding from God and from his own fellows. Whether it be a nudist colony, colony and at an orgy or, uh, orgy or in primitive society or in the nursery or public nudity is only possible for those unconscious or aggressively heedless of their sinfulness. This is why he says only the godless or the immature reveal their bodies. The one exception to this rule is in marriage only within this peculiar two-person sanctuary may some of the normal rules and taboos regarding adult nudity be described or discarded or relaxed in perfect freedom and consciousness. So to be naked with another person is sort of a picture, symbolic demonstration of perfect honesty, perfect trust, perfect giving, and perfect commitment. I'm exposing myself completely to you. And if the heart is not naked along with the body, then the whole action becomes a lie and a mockery. 
It becomes an involvement in an absurd and tragic contradiction. The giving of the body, but the withholding of the self. The exposure of the body in a personal encounter is like the telling of one's deepest secret. And afterwards, there's no going back, and there's no pretending that the secret is not out. It is not a step that establishes deep intimacy. It's one that presupposes it. As a gesture of symbolic perfect trust and surrender, it requires a setting or structure where perfect surrender can take place. And of course, that's the marriage, he says. Listen to this. Still though, even though we were banished from Eden and we were not as couples, the first couple was not banished from each other's arms. It's a great statement nor from the marriage bed. Of all the curses, one of them could have been God saying, no more sex. And so he writes, this is one garden to which God continues to welcome husbands and wives where they're privileged to return again and again in order to expose their nakedness and be healed of secrecy and separateness. Remember, we clothed Adam and Eve because we were sinful and hiding. And in marriage, you get that one opportunity from a physical perspective to unveil yourself of those secrets, to be loved and known. And the body just carries you right into it. And to be seen naked in that way is to be seen naked through and through. And so he writes, the marriage bed is in a way the fleshly counterpart of the confessional. It is here that the bonds of love and trust are forged that will be strong enough to contend with the sin of shame we've all carried. And our body sort of represents that. You don't know this, but um, I have a, uh, in my abdomen, I have this little uh, fatty tissue thing it's a knot and um they're common i've had the doctors check it out to make sure it's not you know something dangerous uh but it's an eyesore uh it looks like i swallowed a small water balloon (laughs) and um it's the kind of thing that i hate that it's there don't look i mean don't don't try to see it (laughs) sometimes in my shirt you can see it but when my shirt is off, my wife can see it. And I've had it here now for a couple years. Uh, but almost on a weekly basis, she's like, are you, are you sure that's okay to have? <laughs> and then it forces me to look at it again. And then I look, uh, I'm looking in the mirror going, I see, uh, yes, it's fine. And I think that unless she had made a covenant, she'd be gone. I think she would. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that It's the kind of thing, you know, and as you get older, things appear on your body. You don't know where in the world they came from. Some are inside, some are out. And you're like, oh my gosh, somebody better love me. And it's just another, another picture of what I am through and through. Just fatty knots of sin. And in marriage, though, you're exposed, the good and the bad. It's a powerful thing to have somebody know you and still love you, to see your flaws. And so marriage then 
reclaims the body, makes it pure and clean and holy, he says. Uh, Marriage attacks original sin in effect. At its visible root in the shame of nakedness and defeats and heals the shame by directly confronting it on the safe and holy ground of a covenant relationship. For a husband and a wife to be naked together is like a kind of radiation treatment. The healing rays of which can be felt at the center of the soul. Isn't that amazing? That's a vision for marriage. And I love what he says that uh, this this. This intimacy between a husband and a wife, he calls an actual remnant of the original condition of humanity as it first emerged from the dust, fresh formed in the Lord's hand. It's just a reminder every time. It's phenomenal. This is not something to be looked at in pages of a magazine. So what it looks like in reality before marriage is what I wanted to try to do today. There was a million ways I could have gone on this. But I, uh, I just decided to do this. And I'm thinking of the unmarrieds in here uh, at, at whatever stage of life you're in. Um, so I thought I would uh, go to Song of Solomon and the end of the book. Uh, don't get nervous. Um, the end of the book. Because this is not about just... This is not about just exposing a bunch of stuff. I want to. I want you to. I want you to. I want you to hear the vision of these in a practical context. I could take you to New Testament texts more than Hebrews thirteen to tell you, "Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it." Christians are so good at saying, "Don't do it." They don't know how to give a great vision for it. I know that, and I'm guilty. So, let's take you to this couple and see what we can discover. Um, Song of Solomon eight twelve, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move through the beginning of this. I've gotten more written here than I need to say. So, um, when you get to the end of the book, you got eight chapters to describe an entire married life. That's huge. I mean, if it were Netflix, it'd be eight seasons. There's no way to take you know, uh, all of this and put it in just eight chapters. So, whatever they emphasize in just eight chapters, you know's got to be important. I want to take your whole married life and put it in eight simple chapters. Um, And it celebrates, of course, the book, the wonder of sexual attraction and desire and pleasure and all those things. And uh, the beginning of the book, Solomon owns a garden. He owns many gardens. But this gal who's in there, this beloved, this this sweetheart, is... um, Works in the field. Her brothers kind of oversee one of his gardens, Solomon's gardens. And so she works in it because the brothers make her work in it. She talks about that at the beginning of the book. That's how the the book begins. And that's how she meets him. And so the metaphor of the garden keeps itself all the way through the book and becomes a picture sort of of the sexual intimacy. So even before they're married, um, they're really honest about their sexual intimacy, even when they're even at the beginning. And so, what you see is that they're not weird about it, nor are they prudes about it. Um, but they know sex has to wait till marriage. And there's a refrain that runs through the book: 
Do not awaken or arouse my love until she pleases. This is the verse. And it, they say it at the beginning, sort of during the dating. And then the night before the wedding, the verse before they come together, they say it again. Right up until that moment. And then the only other time it's used is at the end of the book as if they're reflecting on the importance of that single piece as a thread through the book. So while they're celebrating everything about their, 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 their intimacy and their uh, sexual reality and accepting all of that and loving it, they know it has to be controlled. And so that's what they celebrate at the end. It's a powerful Powerful picture, because you can see the oath here. Uh, Do not stir up or awaken my love until she pleases. And so every bit as powerful as the sexual relationship is in the Song of Solomon, so is sexual control. And so even after the fact, this is what they reflect on. And so even on the wedding night, so when he has the wedding night, this is what he says to her. You've been a garden locked to me. A spring locked and a fountain sealed. It was inaccessible to me. But now that we're married, what a wonderful gift to open it here. That all the fruits of that garden, its smells, its tastes, all of its wonders for me. And so they... They, they see it as a great gift. They acknowledge it as, to one another as a great gift. And, uh, and, and I, want, I don't want you to miss this. Only one commentator made this connection, and I sort of hunted for it. Because the garden takes you back to Eden. And it just reminds you of the wonders that God intended for it. And it's a garden we get to still go back to in marriage So, at the end of the book, after they're married, they've been married a long time, it just seems like they're sort of older now, and they're reflecting on their dating life. And they're sitting around with family and the brothers, and they're reflecting on, remember how we met, and all this other kind of stuff. Because they've been married for years now. Um, And the story comes full circle because the brothers speak. It begins with the brothers overseeing the garden and then it ends with the brothers talking. What do they discuss? Well, uh, let's look at it. They're remembering when she was a little girl. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. She's immature. Uh, What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? How are we going to protect her until she's married? She's young now and she's immature. But the whole family's thinking about her purity on the day that she gets married. That's their vision. Of course, this would have had tremendous impact on the whole family, this whole issue. So they're thinking ahead. It was a matter of honor for the family. And so this is what they say. And now if you know anything about Genesis, just read Genesis. And you know the brother's responsibility to keep the daughter pure. You just go through Genesis and you'll see that. Especially 34, chapter 34. Uh, but I, I don't have time to go there. Um, 
But here's what they say. If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Do you get the imagery here? If she stays pure, if no one enters, the wall is a barrier. Well, then we'll we'll build a battlement of silver. We'll adorn her. We'll make her attractive and beautiful if she stays a virgin. That's the image of the wall. Uh, there's no entrance. Okay? This is, it's go away or go around. But stay away kind of a thing. That's the wall. So they're saying, you know, if she's a wall, then we can just adorn her with silver and this battlement of silver. Uh, but if she's a door... In other words, she's open. If people can get in there, well, then we're going to have to we're going to have to get cedar, a precious wood at the time, very valuable wood, uh, very strong. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to border up. This is barricader in. This is just contrasting. Are you saying this is the conversation reflecting on marriage? At the end of this book, it's incredible. And this is kind of a dilemma for all of us. It's not just a dilemma for the brothers about the sister. It's a dilemma for the sister. How is she going to stay pure? It's a dilemma for all of us, married and unmarried. How are we going to stay pure? And so she speaks up. You can imagine them sitting around Thanksgiving dinner and the brothers bring up this story. A little embarrassing. But then she pipes in right here. Like you think, what is she going to say to these monkeys? I was a wall, she says. And my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. This is an incredible verse. I can't think about a better way to approach marriage and to think of marriage in terms of a vision for sexual purity. It's right here. And here's what she says. You know, I was a, I was a wall. I was emphatic. It's as if she's stepping in to say, you didn't have to protect me. I protected my, myself. I had my own defenses, is what she's saying. I kept myself pure. I had my own convictions about it. She says, my breasts were like towers. He's com- she's, they compared her to a city when they talked about the wall and the doors. That would be comparison to a city. And of course, the walls were pr- for protection. A uh, city without walls was vulnerable. And so um, she's saying here, um, uh, you know, if the walls, or if the towers on the walls would be these towers, and that's where you could get you know, you could protect the city. So if the towers were to fall, and we'd pretty much mean the city's taken over. And she calls her breast towers. I mean, they're, they're a picture of protection. Something she protected. Um, the towers were a crucial part of the city's security. It was not something to flaunt. They were not something to flaunt. She's saying, don't get close. There's snipers behind these. 
That's what she's saying. Uh, I don't know how they appear to you, but they're more dangerous than you think. That's what she's saying. And then she makes this comment right here. But then one day, there'll be one person whose eyes will see them. And that one guy will find peace. This is a very, very powerful word. Shalom. And by the way, the one guy, Solomon, and Solomon and Shalom is another word play. She finds this fulfilling person and there's peace because she saved herself from and police or peace is the word for shalom uh you 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 know it you've heard it um uh no one can adequately describe what the word means and all of its meanings it's such a phenomenal force because it really means fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction. It's a way of describing the deepest kind of peace you can know in its fullest sense. Just an absence of concern. And she is saying, presenting myself to him and to him alone has created this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment and no concern. It's a powerful image. Saved and protected for you. Now it works both ways, obviously. But this is just describing the woman. And then she says this. Uh, She reminds them, yeah, Solomon had a vineyard. uh, uh, he, He has lots of vineyards, actually. He let out the vineyard. Uh, the vineyard to keepers. In other words, he rented out all of his vineyards. Solomon had about just multiple, multiple vineyards that employed a lot of people. And each one was to bring its fruit and a thousand pieces of silver. So, I mean, you could see he was wealthy. That the fruit that produced out of these, all these vineyards he actually owned made a lot of money for him. Thousand pieces of silver. Uh, and then she says this to him. But my vineyard was my very own. He had a lot of vineyards that he worked in real life, but I was a vineyard myself. And you, O Solomon, now as my husband, can have all of its proceeds, all of its benefits are yours. Oh, and then she makes a sort of a comment toward her brothers, the caretakers. They get paid too, but they really weren't that significant in the process. You see, you see, do you see that? That's a little dig to the brothers who brought up the embarrassing story of Thanksgiving. <laughs> so let me say a couple of just personal things to you that I just saw as I was reading this. Because you might be sitting here to you saying, you know, hey, uh, what if I've already opened that door? Um, few of us can say we didn't crack that door in some way prior to getting married. And I just want to say to you that uh, what I believe about grace 
you can start being what God wants you to be anytime. And you may not be married now, but you foresee the day coming. You can say to yourself, from this moment on, I'll be a wall. And whenever that night comes, I'll let my husband know I've kept it for him. You can do that. I'll let my wife know I've kept it for her. Right up until after the wedding. Now, um, here's what I would say to the unmarried in here. And I know, and I feel this. Anytime a person is telling you not to have sex, but he gets to, it's a little bit weird. And you're like, hey, yeah, easy for you to say. It's almost like this, the most successful people are the ones who say success doesn't mean much. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the rest of us who haven't gotten there, oh no, we want to try so I understand that. Very aware of that. Okay, that's why next week I'll show you the problems on the other side and the issues on the other side of being purity because marriage doesn't solve the purity problem. So here's the first thing I would say about uh, the text we just read. First thing, your sensuality and your sexuality is a good thing. God made it and your body is good. And at some point in this talk, what I left in my office, what I wanted to do now, but I wouldn't have had time. Uh, I'm going to show you how, how I think Christianity probably is more body positive than any other religion in the world. Um, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, it's sacred and it's special. And you ought to see it as a part of all of who you are and not separate from you at the deepest level. That's the first thing I would say to you. The second thing I would say is um, you've got to have what she had in this story. And that is your own personal radical commitment to purity. You are not going to get a lot of help from the world in this endeavor. You'll have to have a deep conviction that comes out of not just a right and wrong in morality, but a greater picture for how God created it, what it's for, and its purpose. You got to see that for the for the hardest days of being pure. You ought to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7 and, and make a commitment because it says in there to possess your vessel, your body, and probably, probably he, he means your, your genitals, your sexual organs. Possess them in sanctification and honor. Treat them like they're sacred and valuable. In 1 Corinthians 6, which says your body is a temple. 
far more sacred than you think. Um, I was, I mean, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I guess I've told you before, I think, you know, I was 14 years old, I had just become a believer. My dad, who was not pure in any way, is trying to help his 14-year-old son manage his own sexuality and desires. And I was dating this cheerleader on this optimist team in our city. Um, and he said, son, you know, you're going to, she's not a believer. You're, you're going to have to be careful. I said, okay, I'll figure that out. I don't know what it means. I was clueless. And she was a little older than me. And so, uh, she, she said to me one day outside of her house, I had ridden my bike over there because I was a mature stud. And I remember standing at, at the edge of her walkway and her literally saying to me and pointing to her bedroom window and saying, if you'll, you'd be the perfect boyfriend, she said, if you, if you would sleep with me. Here I am, 14 years old. Uh, all I knew what my dad, all I knew was that my dad told me that's off limits. I didn't have anything else. No theology. No biology. No anthropology. No sociology. Nothing. I had nothing. Clueless in every way. And I remember just saying, I can't. I can't. Tammy got on my bike and rode home. It became, for me, a defining moment. To wait. At some point, you're going to have to have that moment where you decide. Um, the third point I want to make for you is that you got to you got to keep healthy community. You know, as an unmarried person, and lots of activity, healthy activity community, a connection of people who have the same goals and values that you do. Be around people. Don't talk the way the world talks. Tempt the way the world tempts. You need healthy voices in your life. It'll never happen. Uh, I got all the way through college. Oscar was my roommate through high school, through these days, and through college. And we would go on dates, sometimes separate, sometimes together. We would always come back to the room and challenge each other. We'd have never made it without each other. Never made it. I needed someone else in my life who had the same goal. Then lots of activity. Kingdom work. You know, an unmarried person, Paul talks about it. I'm not going into all those details. This is not teasing out every, I'm not peeling the entire onion here. I'm just talking about this particular part of this. Um, get involved in kingdom work, man. Exercise. Work it out. Get a good hobby. 
Get a pet. Not a fish or a reptile. Something you got to chase. <laughs> then I would say, uh, make sure that you're looking for the right kind of person. You know, in our days, it's, it's, it's either beauty or money. You need to be looking for the right kind of person. Uh, because if you're not going to find a person who shares your faith, you're, do you realize what that means? That means the center of my life. I can't, listen, I, I can't eat a meal or watch a movie without thinking about how God is influencing and speaking to me. How in the world am I going to be married to a person that I got to hide this whole part of me that defines who I am and dictates everything, the way I see reality? How am I going to hide that from a person who doesn't share that with me? That means I'd have to hide it a little, which means marriage, I'm supposed to be totally exposed and known, and now I can never be really fully exposed and known because this whole part of the center of who I am can't be revealed. It just doesn't make sense. You might be strong enough to date people, maybe casually, who aren't believers. But you can't imagine that that it can go serious if they don't share that centerpiece of your life. I'm just going to say to every single in here, I'll tell you the best thing you do. If I was unmarried, you get a hold of Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and you read the chapter on singleness and marriage. It's one of the finest things you will read on the topic. If you're not married, how to think about it. Um, make sure you do that. Um, of course, you've got to monitor your expectations of marriage. I'm going to deal with that a little bit more next week. Because some unmarried people are afraid of marriage. And you don't need to be. It's a healthy thing. And on the other hand, uh, you don't need to idolize it either. You don't need to think it's going to solve all your problems. And so you just become achy all the time and you never really quite find any peace. Never, never enough community and never enough uh, connection and even spiritual dynamic in your life enough to find out that, you know, uh, Christ can be more to you than you imagine. And it doesn't matter what your station in life is, married or unmarried, you will need him to be at the center of it because you will never quite have everything you think you need. So don't idolize marriage either. I guess my final thought is this. You know, the scripture says, Uh, blessed are the pure for they shall see God. Uh, He doesn't say blessed are the pure they'll find sexual fulfillment. You may not ever find it. Even after marriage. He doesn't say blessed are the pure you'll never experience Extreme loneliness. 
Because even married people can experience extreme loneliness. Which is why you got to have Christ at the center of your life. You got to know and experience him in a way. A commitment to purity involves loss. At some level, doesn't matter which side of the bed you're on. But there's a lot of gain. There's a lot of gain. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, it's always our hope that your word will penetrate our hearts in a way that is... um, that changes the way we see reality. And uh, many of us are, are hurt and uh, broken and because in our culture, maintaining purity is, requires absolute focus. Wherever we are today, give us a vision to be what you've what you long for us to be. And make it, make it clear and real in our daily lives. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your healing. And for this incredible gift that you've given us. May we remember that every desire we have are all point to the ultimate desire. And that is to know you personally. I pray that anyone in here that doesn't know you would come to know what it's like to find someone who knows us and loves us at the deepest level. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.